Welcome into episode 153. We are back after our one-week break. This is Mike Dawson, the managing editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. My co-host, Mike Johnston of Mike'sLessons.com, is back from his tour of Asia. So we're going to get caught up with all of that, and then we're going to talk a, a long time about the halftime shuffle, our favorite groove, everyone's favorite groove, and then we're going to talk about the great Nate Smith, who's on the cover of the new issue of Modern Drummer. We've got some Istanbul Mehmet Hammer series symbols to check out. We've got some listener questions and our picks of the week, so let's get rolling. Oh my goodness. Welcome back. Away from each other for like two <laughs> weeks, and, and the snap was on point. <laughs> yeah, no. It's like, what are we doing? How are you, man? I'm good. I'm fine. I'm rested. How rested are you is the question. <laughs> <laughs> One to ten, negative forty-six. <laughs> negative forty-six. <laughs> yeah, I'm hanging in there. It was, you know what, man? It was once again. Travel is the problem. I was yeah. dealing with so many typhoons in Asia. Oh, that's um, right, it's typhoon season. Gosh. I almost missed the first clinic. Both Jules, uh, you know Jules, right? Yeah, DW from DW. Yeah. So she was on the tour with me because she's now the head of education for DW Gretsch and Toka. Okay. Um, so she was on the tour with me, and uh, yeah, we we kind of came in together, landed in Beijing. To uh, I mean, came in separately, landed in Beijing, and yeah, we almost missed the first clinic, and we gave ourselves a full day to land and acclimate and everything, and we still almost missed the first clinic, but because of a typhoon. Nice. So uh, yeah, that was chaos, and then we we got there, literally landed and went to the stage type vibe. Uh, then everything was good. What's that? That's nice and chill. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And you just like, it's like everywhere you're landing, it's getting more and more humid until you're like, I'm just soaking wet. Like, yeah. And just the, the slime that accum- accumulates from just flying on for me. Tra- totally. Like, just I was like, gooey. I just, can I just get a rinse? Just one rinse. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, that's, that's always the hard part. I mean, once you're there and you're like, Man, I'm in Bangkok, Thailand. I'm in Shanghai. Like, it's amazing. I mean, it's like life changing amazing. It's just getting there. And then on the way home, gave myself a full day, like travel and a full day to get back to being normal before my camp started. And I had a like 52 hour travel time from Indonesia. Then they sent me to Tokyo, Japan. 20-hour okay. layover in Tokyo. Oof. Flew from Tokyo <laughs> to here. Went from here to the camp dinner. I took an Uber from the airport to the camp orientation dinner. Oh, I was man. like, hey, guys. Let's yeah. <laughs> go. Who's ready to rock? What are you uh, doing man. in a 20-hour so, layover? Another typhoon. Eesh. So would you like go to yeah. a hotel? I mean, what the heck do you I do? I actually did that time. Um, I, <laughs> I pulled the... Uh, like kind of spoiled brat card and texted you know Jules and I said uh please get me a hotel please <laughs> and she was to 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 Gretch's credit and to Jules's credit they got me like a nice hotel in right in the heart of downtown Tokyo and she's and she literally said I got you a hotel next to all of the watch shops in Tokyo nice and I was like okay you know what that's as cool as it gets for how bad this situation is that's as cool as it gets Thank you. So uh, had a blast. Um, and then, uh, but yeah, but uh, you know, what I want to talk about, obviously, travel aside, how much different China was this year compared to when I went three years ago as far as the drummers and how they're playing the instrument. It is night and day. I can't believe how much it's changed in three years since I've been there. Unreal. What, growth-wise? Yeah, growth-wise, attitude, everything. When I was there three years ago, it was like watching 
military children play our instrument. Hmm. And it was very timid, but it was flawless. But it was everything was like a recital. It was mm-hmm. like, here's my drum set recital piece, and I'm scared because if I do it wrong, I'm going to get in trouble. And it was just so – it wasn't – in like, as a teacher, I left there feeling kind of sick to my stomach. I was like, mm. that's not the instrument that I grew up playing, and that's not what drums are supposed to be in a child's life. This was totally different. Now, they're still – it's still China, and it's still very driven. And they have drum competitions for kids almost every couple months. So, Interesting. And, it's still like you're valued based off of how well you do in these competitions. But that being said, I'm not a fan of that. But these kids were hitting the drums so hard and <laughs> smiling and hitting with passion. And it was like, oh, man, that's now they're starting to get a little bit of that Western creativity and that Western happiness of just like playing an instrument for the sake of playing the instrument, not to impress your parents and not to win a competition, even though they're still doing that a little bit. There was a very big difference. And the kids, you know, I I, said, I, I uploaded some of the kids that opened for me. They're like eight-year-old girl just smashing, you know. Nice. Um, so, yeah, it was that was different. And then what's crazy is going from China – into Southeast Asia, where I hit Taiwan, Thailand, and Indonesia, and you instantly, like the second you land, you feel this shift in individualism. Now, these, uh, you know, people have the same work ethic, but you see, like, oh, there's the rock guy, there's the goth guy, there's mm-hmm. the punk rock girl, and there's and and they're drumming represented that they had this sense of individualism to them that was like okay there's the art that i was missing previously so um, the but china that is the market man there are probably in the areas like that i could talk to people about i mean luckily i'm so we are so lucky that the rest of the world takes english as a class Hmm. We're just, you know, I mean, we're just bumbling idiots over there. (laughs) And luckily they speak enough English to get by with us. Um, But there's like three to four hundred drum schools and they all have like two to three hundred students each. So it's exploding over there. And it's it's unreal. Like it's so unreal that I just you can't even handle how into drumming they are. They're drumming over there. That is our version of soccer. Every kid does it. Every kid has their matching T-shirt. Um, they all work on these group classes. It's like group classes every single day, and they're working on different grooves and different songs. And it's so organized, man. It's crazy. That's interesting. I mean, so what are they learning? Is are they learning Western rhythm? I mean, what they study? Just yeah, like rhythm. they're learning like ensemble hits. Like I, they were showing the teachers were, would show me videos like, oh, this is my class, and they'd hand me their phone, and you've got like forty kids in a room, all in a circle, all on practice pads, and there's like a Tower of Power track going, and they're playing sixteenth notes and hitting every single ensemble hit. Interesting. Like they're, it's like the military for <laughs> drumming, and no one, no one's happy. <laughs> they're just like. Bam, ta- but what you know, I mean, I think all of that is amazing. But I want to see what what is Chinese drumming? That's what I want. Like, like if there you go to Nigeria, drumming. you you hear Afro pop and Afro beat, and right, they have their own and language. that's what I talked. That's what I talked to their instructors over there about. Was I said, right now I can tell everything you're playing. I can tell you its origin, like immediately like what i don't know what you guys have done yet yeah right so um so yeah so what i thought um 
it was tough as a business person. I'm over there trying to expand my brand. And immediately I realized, okay, everyone that has brought me in here owns a school. It seems pretty douche of me to go, hey, kids, having fun? Why don't you quit that and join my lessons? (laughs) So I never mentioned my website once the entire time I was there. So there's this part of you that's thinking like, well, this is counterproductive. I mean, I don't really need to perform this bad that I have to fly halfway around the world to do it. So my thought of, but at the same time, I want to be a part of this. So I thought, you know, instead of trying to get these people to leave whatever education they're doing and come to my website, it seems like it'd be much more beneficial for everybody. And I could feel better about it if I was part of the educational system in China. So I talked to the guys that are running these groups of schools and we're starting to work on a book deal now so that I can start writing books for their schools in Chinese. Instead of them taking my books and trying to translate them, it's like, let me be a part of your educational system. That way I can grow my brand personally. Uh, There's obviously a business opportunity with making content for them, uh, but I also don't feel so bad that I'm trying to like steal their students, you know? Yeah. That's all very interesting. I mean, I guess, I don't know, what are the internet laws over there? Would they even be able to access your site if they wanted to? They can access Mike's lessons, like parts of it. It's, it's really weird. I mean, yeah. the, the biggest problem is they can't even search for it. You know, Google hmm. still isn't allowed there. So I don't know where I rank on Bing, but, uh, yeah. you know, the way that I have any recognition over there is from them getting VPNs to see YouTube then ripping the videos off of YouTube and uploading them to Youku, which is the Chinese YouTube. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's Yeah, and then trying to build my WeChat profile while I'm over there. That's like their all-encompassing social media app uh, where it's like uh, I'm going to like your picture and order an Uber in this one app. It's like everything all in one. So, um, yeah, it's it was different, but I had an absolute blast and I got to say that the hosts in every city treated me to cultural experiences that I'll never forget. You know, it was just amazing. Um, so I had a blast and huge thanks to Gretch, uh, for putting that on. They're the ones that, that organized that whole thing. And I got to, it was the Gretch 135th anniversary tour. There was supposed to be a 135th anniversary kit at every show, but for some reason, some of the shows didn't receive their kits in time. So Mm -hmm. I only played, I think two or three of the kits and the snares, but, um, it definitely was one of those things where I'm like, ah, oh, I just got my USA custom. It's going to be oh, weird if no. I'm like, hey, Andrew, <laughs> is there any way that you happen to have any more of those lying around? And you just are like, man, this has a blemish. Let's send it to Mike. So, uh, are, yeah, it was, it was are amazing. Are they basically broadcaster shells? Is that what it is? I think, you know, that's a good question. I When you and I were talking earlier, I think I said they were six-ply shells, but I think they're three-ply shells. Okay. Or, you know what? I, I got to look it up. Um I, I had to do a promo video for it while I was there. And the guy like is like, can you shoot a promo video for this kit? And I'm like, yeah, I've never seen it before. Can you tell me what it is? It's pretty. And so he gave me this. Yeah. I was like, all right, check out the new 135th anniversary. It's clearly gorgeous. Find one at your local Gretsch dealer. Um, so he gave me all the specs really quick so I could spit it out to the camera. But I just remember it definitely wasn't a USA. It wasn't a broadcaster. It was its own thing. Uh, I just enjoyed the heck out of playing it. And uh, I got to play it. In a twenty-two, twelve, sixteen configuration, mm. and an eighteen, twelve, fourteen configuration. Oh wow! So which of those two was your favorite? The bop for sure. Yeah, and we and we and we did like a little blanket in the kick, and when you're in like a great room with a great sound system, it was I was like, this is lower than most twenty fours. Yeah, this is right. awesome. 
So I had a blast. So what's new with you, man? What's new with me? I had a nice two weeks of us not doing the show. I can catch up on work. <laughs> more than anything. Listeners, I hope you don't mind, but we need to do that more often. <laughs> Mike and I need a break from each other. Damn. <laughs> it's like every Thursday or Friday. I'm like, what am I going to do today? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to be on. I don't have to talk. About, I don't have to make a pick of the week out of the thin air. Yeah, I don't have to write a description. No, it was. It was. It's been a nice couple of weeks to get caught up. I've kind of been reassessing some things. I'm really kind of prepping for PASIC now. Now I'm like, okay, let's start getting some ideas together. So how far off is that? It's not until November, so I'm just giving myself time to just workshop some ideas. I know what the topic's going to be. It's essentially going to be. Okay. Um, I'm calling it "Unlock Your Creativity." So it's using improvisation and you know looping tools and reworking basic vocabulary to kind of fill in that missing link between you learn something and then you force it on a gig well how do you actually turn it into something so that's that's kind of my topic how do you make something your own that you've been practicing so you don't just regurgitate it the same way every single time it's not easy i mean i think that that is probably one of the most asked questions that i get still um all the time is just the the whole hey i practiced your lessons really hard and it's not showing up on my gigs and it's like oh, yeah. you, you know there is a missing step there and so i think that'll be awesome for you to help people with that and uh not to mention everyone goes about that part that's kind of it's almost like groove or feel or touch that's like one of those topics where everyone goes about it slightly different so that's why there aren't books written on it yeah no it's kind of hard to to codify so i'm i'm trying i have like a dozen different little games i'm calling so i'm trying to weed through them and figure out which ones are going to be the most effective so that's that's cool man i spent the past week doing that and in the interim i decided that i'm going to not use traditional grip anymore it's going to be evaporated from my from my playing <laughs> until this monumental decision god i wish we had the abc <laughs> um so what uh how much were you playing traditional, like on a daily basis? Was it half and half, seventy thirty? Um, it, you know, it it hundred percent depends on what kit is set up and what okay. genre am I trying to play. Okay. Which I thought was just really stupid. That's why I decided no more of this. It's just silly because mm. uh, I'm not yeah. maintaining. Like when I was in college and afterwards, I was maintaining traditional grip, practicing it on the pad, really heavy all all the time. I'm not maintaining it. So now, and I'm not playing that much jazz. So I'm handcuffing myself. If I get on a bop kit and I want to mess around with some jazz stuff, I'm going to use a grip that I haven't been practicing. So I'm going to play a genre that I'm, I need to get reacquainted with. And I'm going to use a grip that is inferior. Right. And I wonder why I don't sound very good. <laughs> it makes very little sense. And I've been dealing with that forever when people are like, man, how do you feather the bass drum and heal up? And I say, uh, practice. Mm. And then the conversation ends. It's like, well, I'd rather do one thing really well than four different techniques at a C minus level. Like, yeah, I'll for just. Sure. So I, I think that's you know it. And I mean, obviously, we also have a lot of jazz professionals right now that grew up in a newer era that play matched grip, and it just it's like, oh yeah, I guess you could just play quieter. <laughs> yeah, I'm having a hard. I mean, I even. I posted something on Facebook and Instagram essentially making that decision because I did a video where I started in traditional grip. As soon as I wanted to go around the toms, I just switched just by instinct. Right. I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm done. No more of that. And so I posted that, and it, it quickly turned into a discussion on the justification for traditional grip, and that wasn't my point. My point was 
I have no longer have a use for it. I'm getting rid of it. You can do whatever right. the heck you want to do. I'm Absolutely. seeing it having no, no function for me. But it was just kind of interesting to see the back and forth with different people about because all yeah. the reasoning for justifying it is it's just based on your own personal experience. I mean, it's it's the- totally <laughs> that, and that's what's so difficult. It's like I'm not trying to fight you, but I'm telling you that like you're doing this just to do it, and I'm okay with that. Like yeah. the the justification should be I feel more comfortable when I hold my stick this way. Cool. Yeah. I get more out of my stick it. when it I hold it this way. It gives you something. But yeah, some of the arguments were that it sounds different. I'm like, I don't think so. Because if you listen to Max Roach, who used both grips almost 50-50, you can't tell me when he's playing traditional grip and when he's playing match grip. Right. You just can't. Right. It makes you maybe think differently because you practice certain things with each grip. Like I've practiced and all that bebop vocabulary traditional grip. So when I play a match grip now, currently it feels a little weird. But my technique feels a lot better. The vocabulary yeah, feels weird, but that's yeah, yeah, exactly, and vice versa. Can you tell when Todd Zuckerman's playing traditional grip? No, no. like it sounds there like sticks. No, it sounds like he's there rocking is no the hell. sonic difference. There, there, there no. is no sonic. <laughs> I mean, that's why it's important to play what's the most comfortable for you, and then yeah. you make the adjustment from there. When I hold my left stick in traditional grip. It is more foreign to me than match grip, not because of the grip, but because of the hours. Yeah, I haven't put in the hours, so my my body's not as used to it. So I would just much rather think, okay, match grip, I feel very comfortable. And let's say somebody says, yeah, but it's a little, it's too loud. It's like, well, let me try getting used to scooting up the stick, you know, one or two little grips. But I don't need to hold it completely different. You know, I mean, I think you were in a different situation than me because you did put in the hours. But even as you go on and on and on, it's like if you're not still maintaining those hours, like you said, it's not going to stick around for you. No. And just the logic of if you want to reach the floor, Tom, with with traditional grip, you really have to kind of hurt yourself. I'm like, I, I'm right. just not going to do this anymore. I just don't care. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and that's I mean, com- again, it's completely my dis- decision for my own situation. If I was playing nothing but traditional jazz and big band, I probably would still be playing traditional grip because the, that language kind of fits with that position where your left hand. It's a language. Move. It's also we can't discount the you know thousands of hours of videos we've watched jazz players with that grip, and it's in our mind. You know, yeah, I yeah. I always think about that as soon as you switch to traditional grip. There's something. There's this little bell that goes ding jazz right you know in your mind it's like we can't erase that um but i can't imagine that if the drum set was built today and there was never marching snare drums that were slung over your shoulder i can't even imagine that traditional grip would even creep up as a possibility there would be no reason to do it no i mean no No. absolutely (laughs) otherwise there'd be people playing traditional grip in both hands (laughs) <laughs> exactly. I mean, why would you make? All right, we don't need to get. We're going to get letters, and people are going to freak out on us again. But I, I think, think do that you made the best point ever. It's for you. Yeah, the decision. And people I was, need to do yeah. what's for them. I was publicly exclaiming that I am done with it. Not that right. the entire not that world you should, should be, be done, done with, with it. it. Yeah, but I do yeah. question teachers who, unless you have a student who is really, really curious, there's really no reason to teach it at this point anymore. I agree. Unless they want to march in drum corps or they're just adamant about they just have to know how to play that way. Right. I think core is one of the things. But, the you know, for me, what I teach is the reason we had it in the first place. 
which actually lets them off the hook from having to learn it. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> I, I, but I tell them the history because they're going to see it. They're going to see someone do it and they're going to ask me what it is. So it's like, I'll tell them the history. I'll tell it where, tell them where it came from. I'll even maybe hold a drum where it would have been on the side of their body and tell them, play that match grip. And they're like, I can't get my hand to it. And then I'm like, okay, now flip it to traditional. And they're like, oh, there it is. And I say, that's how we got that. Now go to the drum set, and there, there's just no reason to do that. You yeah. Know? And, you know, the beginning students that I teach every once in a while, if we're just playing on the pad, I'll I'll still go to traditional grip. Not one of them has mm. said, what are you doing? Not one of them. They don't care. They're just they like, yeah, whatever, man. Just play. <laughs> just play. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Man. <laughs> they don't play. care what I'm doing. They're not curious. They just want to just play. So, yeah, that for me, it's like I, I won't teach it. I won't – unless someone – comes to me and it's like i just have to know more about it fine but at this point right. i'm thinking you might not want to waste your time because it'll take forever if you spent 10 years on, on match grip it's going to take you years just to get where you where you left off when you go to traditional grip okay well just wrapping up the match grip versus traditional grip what do you think about that intro groove by ryan halsey <laughs> i think it sounds like he was playing in match grip <laughs> It really does. It really does. Uh, Ryan sounded great, buddy. Uh, long time Mike's lesson student, and he was yeah. killing it. So uh, by the way, you don't get into the intros easier by being a Mike's lesson student. I don't choose these grooves. <laughs> Dawson chooses these. So if you want to like get a leg up on this stuff, maybe you should, you know, I don't know, send him something. Yeah. I, but every once in a while, it's a Mike's lesson student. I like to call that out. So now All right, let's get wait into. A minute, some, wait, I have to talk about the uh, the. Uh, the intro outro grooves. I think we lost uh, maybe half a dozen or so in, when they were transmitted via email. So if you okay. haven't heard your beat and you've sent it in the past three or four months, if you don't mind, please resend it at mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. And actually, I think what might be happening is when it's getting forwarded over to me, it's not the attachment isn't coming through. So if you could send okay. it as a Dropbox link, maybe that might be better or some other downloadable uh, way. Uh, I apologize for anyone who hasn't been on the show yet, but that's what's happened. So there's been, there's like six or so that I'm like, man, there's no file attached. Okay. Uh, so Ryan so you is got playing. the email, but you just didn't get the file. Yeah, Sorry. I got the email forwarded to me, but not the file. So anyway, that's okay. Ryan. His has been here for a while, so I apologize for that. <laughs> but cool beat, 24-inch bass drum with a 22-inch uh, big Apple Dark Byzance Dark Big Apple Ride. Is that the one you're that's using? That's what I have on. Yeah, that's one I have on my left. Yeah, dig it. So, Ryan, are you playing traditional or matched? It sounds Let's... like matched. <laughs> <laughs> and Which tells us that we can't tell the difference. <laughs> All right, well, let's get in some education. So, in the September issue of Modern Drummer, Jim Riley wrote an article called Demystifying the Halftime Shuffle. And I think that that is something that we all have to go through at some point in our journey. Maybe you have gotten to that point and you've been through it. And maybe you've heard the halftime shuffle and then you tried it and you're like, mine doesn't sound like that. Well, there's reasons for that. And it's not the easiest groove, but it is almost like a riding your bike type of groove, meaning that once you learn how to do it, you kind of have it locked in. The other thing I love about a good halftime shuffle, especially with the ghost notes, is how many drum lessons and you know long-term drum lessons are sitting inside of that groove. If you can play that groove properly, it gives you the ability to play 30 or 40 other things. So it's one of those... Like really, it's like a, a macronutrient packed groove. That's true. Yeah, yeah. There's so many nuances you can explore with it. Uh, you want to drop in an audio file first? 
Absolutely. So check it out. Let's check out the first one is going to be Home at Last, which is by the man who claims to have invented the halftime shuffle. <laughs> Bernard Purdy. <laughs> Passive aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the great Bernard Purdy. I was joking around, but he definitely was the first one to, to make this a thing. Um, I think yeah, there's so I've, much to learn with him for me is the lightness of it. This groove can be destroyed by the dynamics if you don't play it with a light, airy feel. Like and you almost important. have to see him play it to realize how light he's actually playing. Yeah. Um, I mean, the backbeats are strong, but they're not right smashing. And but when you watch that famous Bernard Purdy video, you know where he's kind of explaining it and everything. He's talking through a vocal mic. His drums are coming through a vocal mic. Yeah. Like, yeah. like it's a condenser lapel or something, <laughs> and it's on the whole time he's playing, and the the drums aren't clipping. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, his touch is out of control, and I think that we can all agree that. No matter what you think, you know, a Gadsden groove or the Purdy shuffle, we can all agree that someone did it before them, but who's the person that popularized it? Who's the person that got it on the radio and got recognized for it? And Bernard is definitely um, kind of the father of that. So that halftime shuffle feel, that gives you the vibe of what we're talking about. Now, that can be way heavier, uh, like you will hear in some of the examples, or it can just be really light and airy, like Mike said. Yeah, so um, I guess the... The way Jim explains it is essentially you start with a shuffle, but what kind of makes it the halftime shuffle that we all know is if you put the middle triplet in. But yeah. um, what I also find a little misleading is most of Bernard Purdy's halftime shuffles, he's not playing that middle triplet on every beat. He's just throwing it in every once in a while. So it's really just and a shuffle pattern with the snare on beat three. If you can do that, exactly. it's a halftime shuffle. Right, and I agree. And I think that that's the other misconception about Picaro's shuffle is in the beginning, it's not constant. Yeah, there's almost uh, none. It's just one at the end of the measure, right? One at the end, right? Yeah. And so same thing. Yeah. And so if, if you're thinking about it while you're driving, if you have your classic shuffle, if you just, like Mike said, go one, two, three, four. And you just get that distance doubled between kick and snare. Then you have your kind of halftime shuffle. You can start there. And Jim walks you through the exercises of just putting, don't play the halftime shuffle with the ghost notes. Learn the skills that make the halftime shuffle possible. So it's funny, like looking at this, this is exactly how I teach the halftime shuffle, which is we learn the shuffle with the right hand and ghost the left hand. And we just do that to a slow triplet based song. Mm -hmm. We'll do that for five or six minutes until I feel like that's really happening. The one thing that's not in here, um, and it's definitely not necessary because lots of people play the shuffle exactly as this is written, but sometimes that shuffle might have a little bit of an accent on the downbeats, like chit, 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 chit. But it can definitely be can be kind of monotone too. So the the main thing is getting that. I don't think most people really even conceive how low that left hand has to be on those ghost notes. Yeah, it's kind of. I think of it as if if you can hear it, it's too loud. Really. Yeah, I I don't want you to hear it. I want you to feel it. Yeah. So and 
But then that I think the trick to this entire groove, if we're considering the one that has the the ghost notes in it, is number three in this exercise, which is the backbeat followed by the ghost. Yeah, that's the hardest part. Yeah, because especially as the tempo gets going. But what people do with that is a lot of times they play a solid backbeat and then they try to make a, a second note that's quieter. And the key to this is when you hit your backbeat, don't let the stick rebound. Don't let it come up in the first place. And then all you have to do is drop it from where it was instead of going like, crack, oh my God, crack, please be quiet. Like you don't have to do that. It's just crack, hold it down, and then drop it, and it'll be fine. It, you don't have to make a full stroke into a quiet stroke on the way down. Yeah, right. And I think that's another piece of, of the, the groove, the full groove that we have learned that isn't essential. If you can't do that technique, Agreed. just don't do it. Just hit B3 and then fill in the ghost notes on the other beats. You don't have to have that technique down. I think ultimately, I would it's rather you play the groove with great feel and not have that ghost than you play it the Picaro shuffle flawlessly. But it's horrible. It sounds like a locomotive or something going down. Yeah. I'm like, what is this? Beautiful People by Marilyn Manson? Yeah. So if you listen to that further into that Babylon Sisters, you'll hear Purdy do the other thing that I think makes this groove really mystical is he opens the hi-hat just a little bit on the offbeats. Just a little bit. So basically his left foot is keeping time, probably only open the hi-hats like a quarter of an inch. Right, and then that creates this lilt of something, and I think that kind of go- makes the third note ghost a little bit. So mm, it's kind of yeah. counterintuitive where you think you open on the third note of the triplet, it would be louder, but he's thinking the opposite. It actually makes it right. a quieter thing. So that gives you that implied pulse that you were referring to. Yeah, absolutely. That's super you want to show tricky. another example? Yeah, let's go with um, <clears throat> let's go with the heavier side. So this is the great John Bonham. This is a an outtake if if you've heard these they've been floating around the internet of the drums isolated of bottom playing full in the rain about to say what he says in the beginning of that clip <laughs> if you've heard the clip then you know what he says in the beginning of the clip and i feel like saying that because yeah i mean that's again it's you know 100 dbs louder than purdy but there's so much contour and shape even in the bass drum there's almost like ghosted bass drum notes in there right it's unbelievable yeah it's unreal and you can still hear the human element of it because not every open hi-hat sounds exactly like a sample. Like yeah. Sometimes he yeah. opens it a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. Sometimes it opens uh, in the purdy way where he's getting ready to do his fill, so he starts keeping time with his left foot, and you get mm-hmm. like just a little half open. Um, but, man, I mean, still, what is it, uh, 40 years later, and <laughs> yeah. that like two-mic technique <laughs> yeah. hallway drum tone with compression... <laughs> It's still just as a drummer, like how does that not just get you excited? Like yeah. that sounds amazing. Yeah, he's he's yeah forever one of arguably the greatest rock drummer of all time. And I love the there's something that he does which at the end of the measure going into the downbeat. It's like a little bit of a pause that just gives it an extra weight. It's like he's always going for yeah. the one, but it's not. You know, he's just super patient about it. I mean, it's you could study this stuff for the rest of your life. I think. 
Agreed. Agreed. Well, and that's, you know, bringing us back to Jim's article, that's another thing that can throw it off. And I've seen people butcher fool in the rain because they're obsessed with getting that open. And it's like, I'm (laughs) sorry, you don't have the feel or you don't have the independence to pull that off. That's not an easy place to hit an open hi-hat. It throws off the next like five notes of your groove. And the tendency is to like really accent it. And that's not what he's doing at all. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah crazy. that's it. All right, so let's, and you have to have you have to have a lot of bass drum independence to be able to play that part. That's a weird groove. It really is a weird one. Yeah, I don't ever want to play it actually, <laughs> like in public. No, there's certain <laughs> songs that I'm like, please don't ever call that. Like, you know, um, it, or, or those songs too, where where like the song is so simple and the drum part is the hardest thing ever, and you're like, yeah, yeah it's fun for you, but I don't want to play Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover Tonight. <laughs> singer songwriter coffee house guy you know you just get off you know get off your back jack but i gotta play this like most legendary groove ever and then every guitarist ever is like let's play sissy strut i'm like nah, maybe not <laughs> and and honestly this is one of those songs where i'm like oh god yeah. such a judged i think it's just because it's so judged and there's so much controversy like that's not what he's doing that's not what he's doing it's like oh god you can't fake it you can't fake yeah. that feel i mean no, you can play the notes, but you cannot fake that feel, and you can't play that on like a dead, like pillow full bass. I mean, you can't do it on like a like a fusion kit. <laughs> you know? Right, right. It just doesn't <laughs> yeah, work. Yeah. I've seen people cover this song and not come close to playing that part, but they played the feel instead of the part, and it was totally acceptable. Yeah, I guess that. Yeah, I would the, rather someone just play a nice shuffle than try to be John Bonham for three minutes. I mean, there's nothing worse than. And I'm like, spit it out. My God, stop trying to play the part. Just play cat. I'll just take a shuffle. That's fine. Hell, press play on Johnny's Casio keyboard over there where it says halftime shuffle. It's like, that's fine. So anyways, sorry. I'm a little deprived of sleep, everybody. All right. So let's let's drop in a few more. So we're going to go. This is probably the quintessential halftime shuffle. This is Jeff Picaro on Rosanna. Again, this is another drums only, so you can really kind of check out his his approach. You can hear how he's combining the power of John Bonham with the subtlety and fluidity of Picar- uh, of, of Bernard Purdy. She's <laughs> Pete. Time. Anyway, here's <laughs> Rosanna, Jeff Picaro, the greatest. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I don't even want to talk about it. It's just study that. Find that. Find the drums only version. Gracious. Just study that. And and for me, it's when does he start adding more grace notes? What, you know, what happens to the beat? Why is he doing that? It doesn't start out with all those ghost notes in there. No, no, no. So you want to take it to to one of our great groove drummers of today with uh, Jason? Yeah. So this is one of your favorites, right? Death Cat for Cutie? Absolutely. Grapevine fires. This, I will say this. I, I, I found I went backwards in time later, meaning that uh, Rosanna, Fool in the Rain, Steely Dan was something I always knew about, but I didn't study it as much until this. Jason McGrew's groove on uh, Grapevine Fires by Death Cab for Cutie. That was the one where I was like, okay, now I'm in. I want to study this. I want to learn it. I want to become great at it. 
And so this was actually the most influential out of the group for me, especially, too, because it had left foot in it, which mm. just was a dimension that I wasn't hearing, and it never occurred to me to try. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't really know the beat that well. Where does the left foot come in? Uh, uh, I'll tell you in one second. <laughs> I've got, I'm sorry, Rosanna's a little <laughs> stuck in my head right now. Um, Is it on the, it's on the, the uh of two, right before the backbeat, right? No, it's, it's on the, the uh of one. The, uh of one, yeah. Yeah. The fire spread. Which is cool because he's giving himself a break in the right hand. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and that's one of those things where you learn it as the beat from Grapevine Fires, but then eventually it's just a skill that you'll use for the rest of your life in other things. Yeah. And he's got some like diddles in there. Yeah, that's a cool one. <laughs> All right, so that's uh, there was one more that we were going to talk about, but if you if you know that Dave Matthews actually has a solo album with the great Brady Blade on drums, there's actually a halftime shuffle in the song called "So Damn Lucky," which was one I hadn't heard before Jim's article. Um, so that's another version, another super awesome feeling beat. Um, you know, it's it's funny how famous this groove is and how few songs have it. Yeah. Yeah. When you type in yeah. halftime shuffle to Google, you are going to get this exact list yep. every time. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, there's there's a couple that I use with my students. Um, there's a Tori Amos one that Matt Chamberlain did, uh, Cornflake Girl. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a couple others. But it's not like where when you look for the Gadsden groove, you can find thousands of songs that have yeah. used like the halftime 16th note feel uh this one it's it's rare when when i hear a halftime shuffle i'm like oh my gosh yeah who well, convinced I, the producer to let that one go that's part awesome of, part of it is songwriters aren't writing anything with shuffle feels very often at all and then even yeah. fewer are going with that slick halftime feel absolutely i think you actually will hear a lot of halftime shuffles in the bridges of shuffle tunes there's mm-hmm. a lot of pop tunes that have like a like a cheeky do to get to do to get to do to get and then they'll break in but you only hear it for like four bars and then yep. they go sakataka I'm like ah oh, come on man just stay there felt so good all right so if you guys want to learn more about the halftime shuffle check out the September issue of Modern Drummer magazine check out Jim Riley's article and definitely Mike and I have recommended it a million times over but check out his book as well yes yeah, so it's time to talk about another amazing groove player Nate Smith who's on the cover of the new issue which is the September issue just out if you're a subscriber you've probably gotten it if you're waiting to buy it in the store it'll be out next week um, so Nate Smith a pretty interesting story for me just to see how the greater drum world just kind of discovered him all at once even though the man has been at the top level of the modern jazz scene for 12 years or so <laughs> it's you know it's a funny thing man and it's yeah. it's social media and what's even better about the discovery is that i mean i haven't read the story yet but just from experiencing it as from the outside which i did it wasn't his videos it was yeah, other people's other videos people. of him that became famous yeah. and 
I started watching him when he still didn't have an Instagram account. And I was like, oh, he has nothing on himself. <laughs> yeah. So now it was like, it literally was like finding a chocolate chip cookie in a sea of vegetables to find one of his videos, man. It was like, yes. Did that make any sense at all? Uh, how soggy would that cookie be if it was in a sea of vegetables? <laughs> it's sitting on its own plate. Nate Smith is on his own plate. All right? Come on. The man is elevated. Goodness He's a dry gracious. chocolate chip cookie. But yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where we had the Chops guys and we had the Steve Jordan guys, you know? And, yep. But we didn't have the two mixing perfectly and yeah. when when those videos started coming out and there were all these little backstage clips some some dudes yep. standing backstage with an iphone 3 filming <laughs> him and it was the it, it was just like uh okay i didn't i thought we were done getting original content but this is amazing yeah yeah he's got an infectious feel i think it's it's one of the strongest pockets out there for sure and i'd only known him prior to that as being kind of more of a jazz fusion player when he was working with uh, Dave Holland's band. So I never even paid attention to the fact that he had this other side of his playing. I mean, Dave Holland's stuff is groovy, but it's complicated. It's usually odd times and different things. Right. So I was just blown away, first of all, that he could follow Billy Kilson in that band, who I think was one of the all-time greats in that genre, and then kind of make it his own. And, and that music is difficult and funky, and slick, and he really kind of embodied that whole genre. Um, what else did he do? Oh, Chris Potter's Underground. I think that's another project that got a little bit overlooked, and that was, that's 12 years ago. Chris Potter Underground record was 2006. Dave Holland Critical Mass was 2005. Um, you know, so it's kind of like, okay, now let's go back and dig through and see where this guy came from. Um, he's pretty right. badass. I mean, even in the story, he talks about like this this whole Instagram, YouTube thing. Just it just what happened? <laughs> you know, I'm just doing my thing, gigging, touring, playing with you know, the same people I've been playing with. Right. Like all of a sudden, yeah, I'm getting I mean, clinics but based I, I, on my one minute Instagram clips. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's <clears throat> it's a tough thing to quantify because then everyone could do it. You don't know. I would say that Nate's rise to drum fame you know he, he already was plenty well known with musicians but drummers didn't know who he was but his rise to drum fame is very similar to ash Stone. you know ash was like why yeah, would yeah. anyone want to watch me play a damn shuffle with <laughs> right. a gopro right. it's like uh because you play it better than anyone <laughs> um and similar to nate i'm sure he was like i'm just playing i'm playing beats and it's like yeah. uh they're really good, though, man. Like, <laughs> and what's fun about watching him play is it'll always start with a groove that all of us think we can play. And then he takes it on a journey to a place that bends our minds. Yeah. And But it's still inside a very familiar feel. It's not like he's throwing down in polymetric you know, grooves that we can't even comprehend. It's like, dude, he's playing a Gadsden groove. Yeah, yeah. With and then he so just takes intensity. it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> takes it and takes it. But it's. I think the fact that he never leaves where it started and he stays in it, that's what makes us go like, uh, it's that thing that we're all looking for, which is, can you please be tangible enough that I am inspired by you instead of defeated by you? And Nate Smith, mm. to me, is one of my most inspiring drummers. It, like When I see a video from him, I'll watch it a thousand times in a row every time. Yeah. For, yeah, for me, what I'm trying to glean from guys like him is how do I – how do I distill that amount of passion and, and confidence and power with something that every drummer thinks they can play? 
Like, what is right. he doing? What what exactly is he doing? And I want that. The I want to crack that code. I think it ultimately yeah. comes down to just he's just committed to every single note that he plays, and he's just oozing yeah. with just passion and focus and. Well, and I also feel that like that is a groove environment that he has explored more than I have. And I don't feel like he's more talented than you or I. I feel like he has more hours under his belt and those hours are coupled with passion. I think he loves the albums that make up that have those grooves and he loves the players before him that played those grooves. So there's this passion, but tied to like. You know, I, I, you and I talked about it at the beginning of this year. I said, I'm going to spend a lot of time working on this feel and staying mm-hmm. in this tempo that's not quite, you know, doesn't allow me to do all my licks that I've predetermined work out okay. Um, and I mean, he a lot of times plays it a little bit faster than me because he has, or than where I'm practicing it. He's got wicked chops. <laughs> yeah, Duke can play his. But. It's still, like I said, it's still familiar enough that when you hear it, you're not going like, oh, I just don't know what's happening. I mean, later in the video, you won't know what's happening. Oh, yeah. But it always starts where you go like, I can do that. It's like, nah. <laughs> you're eight seconds away from realizing that you can't. <laughs> no, it's pretty I mean, rad. Yeah, you could do it, but can you do it like that? That's the thing for me. Can you do it like that? Well, isn't that? that the only thing that separates all of us? I mean, we have access yeah. to the same information nate doesn't have a book that we can't find right? it's just how do <laughs> you might. do it <laughs> <laughs> the secret to groove <laughs> by you don't know uh, yeah. so yeah. anyway well, nate, nate smith he's got a solo album that actually got a grammy nomination it's called kinfolk how they recommend yes, it's it amazing that kind of uh, highlights his whole thing and then i i urge you to dig back into his discography and check him out when he was fresh on the scene with Dave Holland and Chris Potter. Those are some of the best kind of modern jazz fusion records, I think, of the past, of my lifetime. They're, they're really interesting. Um, so anyway, let's go to, uh, quickly, what are we going to talk about? Some symbols now? Symbols. <laughs> oh my. Some good sounding symbols that you made fun of me actually loving them because they sound like my symbols. <laughs> <laughs> so these uh, are the Istanbul Mehmet. I'm going to say they're called Hammer. H-A-M-E-R with a backwards E. Hammer series symbols. <laughs> uh, yeah, I reviewed these, and the name actually kind of put me in a different direction. I thought Hammer series, these are going to be big, loud, bright rock and roll symbols. The name actually means they hammered the crap out of them, so they're super thin so and super trashy. Trashy, dead. Um, I mean, there's like giant dents in, in some of these crashes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's give them a listen first, and then we'll uh, then we'll talk about them. drum sounds like a sample but like a sample of a 60s 70s right. <laughs> right. yeah 
Sounds amazing. Uh, those symbols are awesome. I didn't realize the first time I went through this that those hi hats were 16s. That's yeah. a big set of hats. They are. They, you know, they they were kind of deceiving. They didn't play like really giant hi hats. They're definitely dark and low pitch, but they didn't play like slog. You know, sluggish. Yeah, they don't sound like two 16 inch crash symbols. They yeah. sound like hats. Yeah, those were those are my favorite. <clears throat> the the hi hats and the 22 inch dry ride were my favorites of the series. Yeah. I felt. I mean, that dry ride is dry it's called dry yeah, yeah. <laughs> for a reason yeah. which is super yeah. cool for some of the gigs i do when i'm playing local stuff and i want to you know sometimes we're kind of trying to dig in and the ride is usually the first thing that i have a, a trouble with controlling so this ride is good for that real kind of tight dark articulate fun you can crash it you know it's just right. a fun symbol but really dry i gotta i gotta say though that 17 inch classic the one that's all the way to your left yeah Yep. That's a really cool symbol. It is. That one was really nice. It's it sounded like a really like a well worn symbol. Exactly. It's yeah. not too you know Turkish China trashy. Yeah. It's it's actually like a beautiful symbol. Then right at the end you hear that you hear those big hammer marks kind of do their job. Mm-hmm. So it's like beautiful, and then it just has this quick decay and a little bit of that China trash right at the end, but yep. it doesn't kind of sound like a mix between a china and a crash i really like that symbol a lot that one stuck out to me for sure yeah the split crash was it's it's only partially lathe it's just a little drier than the classic crash i i wouldn't if i this was my setup i wouldn't use these two symbols at the same time they were just a little bit too similar sure yeah uh, split sure. crash was just a little bit drier had a faster decay the flange crash was really interesting they hammered the heck out of the outer couple inches so you could like bend the edges almost 90 degrees down which gave it like this weird pitch wobble when you crashed it which was fun i don't think everyone would would love it it's a unique sound actually i mean i i could really see that crash on somebody with a minimal setup that's playing slightly electronic music and some 12 inch hi-hats yeah that crash you know and a and a ride with gaff tape on it yeah Um, yeah yeah that's kind of how i think I i liked it below the ride symbol so i could kind of just come down and just kind of smack it yeah like a quick, that was cool accent now where are these falling in the i mean i don't see a price here but i'm assuming i mean these are professional level symbols yeah right? they're handmade from you know Istanbul Mehmet over in their factory it's yeah it's what you would expect comparable we don't have priceless lists when these things come in um you know but they're they're not they're not as they're not the most expensive or the cheapest things on earth that's for sure, sure. Awesome. Well, definitely check these out, guys. And and just go to moderndrummer.com and look this up. It's in the product close-up area of things. And you can hear Mike playing this. Um, and you can decide what do you want to pay attention to, these amazing cymbals or Mike's amazing bass drum tone. <laughs> High amounts of jealousy on that one. can't that take one. credit so, for that. That's a 70s Ludwig. I can't take credit for that. <laughs> it just uh, That's uh, what it does. <laughs> I almost just cussed on our podcast. That is, it sounds good. All right. Let's get into some questions. All right. So first one is from Jake. He says, I have an old Roland V-Drums kit that I want to be using in my apartment for practicing. I don't like the preloaded sounds. I'm wondering if I could use something like Ableton Live or Pro Tools to trigger some better sounding samples with the MIDI out of the kit. Uh, Yeah, so that, an old Roland kit, you're going to need some kind of a MIDI to USB converter. You're you're not going to be able to just plug, unless you have an interface that has a MIDI input. 
which is kind of un- probably unlikely anymore. Those are older ones. So you're going to need some kind of a converter to turn your MIDI output of your Roland to a USB to hook up to your computer. There's tons of great sample libraries. I think Easy Drummer is the the simplest kind of plug it in. It sounds good. Try that one first. That would be my first suggestion. But there's so many of them. Yeah, that's it. You don't do that stuff, right? You got nothing to say. That. That's why my thumb is up. Just saying, move on, move on to something yeah. that makes sound without power. Easy drummer, superior drummer, and then Pro Tools. I think has their own drum thing that's cool. Uh, Ableton has some drum um, libraries in it, but they're not really designed to, for e kits. They're more for programming. So Easy Drummer. It's only a couple hundred bucks. Just get it. Um, next one is from Adam. I have a question about cymbals and drum angles. What are you personally trying to achieve by ang- angling the instrument, and what draws your attention to other drummers' choices of angles? Ooh, that's a good question, especially because with Chris Coleman and Anna Canillis playing yeah. the, some of their cymbals facing away from them, which yeah. has been everything we've been taught not to do. Um, and Annika only did it after playing Chris's kit. She did a sound oh, yeah. check. You know, they did a festival together, and she just really she was like, "Man, I really like that." And then she started doing it. Um, I, I mean, I obviously like always had my cymbals kind of flat when I was a rock drummer for the visual aesthetic, but I also knew I was going to crack them faster because I'm hitting them like just straight on. Mm. Um, and now my cymbals, I don't care what my kit looks like anymore. My, everything on my kit is to be comfortable for me to play. And so. You're doing more riding than crashing this, these days, right? So that would yeah. that would then make you angle it maybe towards you more. Than yeah, you did exactly. Yeah. Ex- exactly. So my ride symbol, my main ride uh, between my rack tom and my floor tom has come up probably three or four inches and been clicked towards me like one or two clicks. Um, okay. It's not flat by any means, and it's also not a wall in front of me. Um, but it's just comfortable to play. My crash on my right, which is the only crash I have on my kit, um, is somewhat flat, but it's it's leaning towards me a little bit, maybe one or two clicks. And then I have on my left, I have my 22-inch ride, and that is definitely angled down because I don't I don't crash on it very much, so I don't need the edge of it. I just yeah. need to play the surface of it. Yeah, same for me. I, it's all, it comes down to what's the dynamic and what type of playing am I going to be doing on that gig or that session. If I'm going to be hitting hard, then things are going to be more flat. If I'm Right. If I'm looking for more control and articulation, things are going to be more angled. I guess, how do you describe flat? <laughs> Perpendicular to the floor, <laughs> more right, vertical. Right, right. Yeah, because I have yeah. found that, especially with the ride symbol, the more vertical that I hang it, the the tighter the stick sound gets. You know, it's just the symbol doesn't yeah. vibrate. No, as I agree. Much. Yeah, and also it just it makes the bell easier to access, you know. Um, but a lot of it just comes down to what feels comfortable to you. And I know, too, that there's just people that have – we talked about this with the traditional grip thing, and I think this holds true for the angles of the symbols. It's what's stuck in your head, man. If you grew up in the rock era of the 80s, you're going to need some tall cymbal stands, mm-hmm. and you're going to have them flat yeah. – and you're going to wish they were on chains hanging from the ceiling like Warrant or whoever was doing that in the Cherry Scott Pie Rocky video. Felt, Scott or is that who did it? Yeah, yeah, with, uh, with Queensryche. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so, yeah, so it just comes down to what's stuck in your head. But that's why I think it's so important to play other people's kits. I think my current setup has been completely influenced by spending time on Benny's kit, on Mark Juliana's kit, on Ash Stone's mm-hmm. kit, on Carter McLean's setup. 
you know, and eventually it's like, oh man, I never thought to do that, but this is really comfortable to me. I'm going to incorporate that little thing into my drum set, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. One of the weirdest kits I ever played that I thought felt really comfortable was Ndugu Chancellor. Really? Like with the with the rides, the two rides, just like ears, yep. like Mickey Mouse ears. It felt super comfortable. So every once in a while, I just do that, just to kind of remind myself that there's a, that is a choice. You can try that. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. All right, last question is from Lucas, relating to symbols. I was wondering if you could discuss your opinions on what you would consider misusing a crash symbol in common places where people tend to overuse them, as well as what you would consider the right ways to use them. Talk about subjective. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, and stylistic, you know, for sure. Yeah. That one's tough um, for me. I think it comes down to, the, you know, what's your intention? Because there's, there's some players that can play crashes every bar, and you're like, yes, that's amazing. I think if you're only hitting crashes out of habit and you haven't thought about it, then that's when I'm going to be like, dude, do not hit that crash for another no, every minute. time. We, I mean, that, that was like one of the themes of these camps for years was the marking of the one. And I'm like, mm. you're not doing that for the music. You're doing it for you because you're lost without doing that every four bars. Oh, yeah. But there's nothing happening in the song that requires – I mean, a crash is an explosion, especially when they reach over and hit my 20-inch extra-thin hammered crash. I'm like, you thought that's what was needed in this verse? <clears throat> so why am I so salty today? I'm not mad at anybody. I'm actually in a great mood. Just, I didn't realize how much this podcast was therapy for us. Mm-hmm. And now that I've missed it for two and a half weeks, I'm like, I've got some stuff to get off my chest. Y'all stop crashing every four bars. But yeah, I think there's you can hear when somebody's marking time for themselves with the crash, and it's not helping the music. Um, And so I think it's really important to make sure that you're saving those crashes for the right time to accentuate something that's happening and to to help the music to propel it forward you know yeah i don't think it yeah and i don't think it necessarily means you play fewer crashes it just means you play the crashes where you mean to play them rather than when just, they need to be played yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly and and that's that's what i want all of my students to do is like make sure that your ears told you to play that not your body if your body was just used to playing a crash every four bars then you're not listening to the music yeah that's but, very true you know yeah there's there's foo fighter songs where i'd crash every two bars because that's what the song it goes you know smells like teen spirit it's like every measure on the downbeat yeah you got exactly yeah exactly actually i remember now when i first started recording tracks for people i would go through a process of first time through the song do not play any fills do not play any crashes and then listen back and say where is the point in the song when you're like dude play something like that's how i kind of taught myself you know restraint like don't hit a crash in the middle of a verse and while i'm doing this i can listen it's really hard for me to listen when i'm playing fills and explosion crashes but i get to go oh i wish i would have hit a crash there like her vocal line just needed some support i should have hit a crash there you Mm -hmm. know the other thing is did you bash the crash or did you just kind of brush into it? Uh, Phil Collins was the one that taught me, not literally, but just his recordings, but taught me that you could crash without a bass drum in a pop tune. You know, mm-hmm. like he would go into a verse and crash without the bass drum instead of exploding. It was just kind of, and it was like, oh man. Yeah. It was like this emptiness on one and then the next note you hear is the backbeat of two and it was a great way to go from a verse back downwards into a chorus you know i mean sorry to go from a chorus back down into a verse Mm -hmm. 
Cool. All right. Well, thank you guys for your questions. We appreciate them. Keep sending them in to mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. We will chip away at more next week for sure. And now it is time for our picks of the week. So my pick is um, something I forgot to check out. The I'm a I'm a Logic Pro X user. Uh, recently converted. I, I use Ableton Live for tracking for years. But when I got my new Mac, I went ahead and bought Logic Pro X, and then the recent update, they added some really cool vintage EQs that I think are as good as the ones you can spend a couple hundred bucks buying. They have a Neve-style one, they have an API-style one, and they have a uh, Pultec-style. They sound nice. great. And I'm kind of, you know, I was almost about to pull the trigger to, you know, relicense some plugins that I'd let expire. And then I'm like, you know what? Nope, these sound good. They have the same basic interface. They look like them. I'm like, Logic has done it. They've got it. It's good. I don't need to spend $1,000 on plugins. I'm telling you right now. I don't need to spend <laughs> No, you're telling you right now. <laughs> I've, I've you, been there, man. I you know get those exactly emails. It's like, come on, upgrade your plugins. I'm like, no, stop, stop bugging me. I'm not. Doing <laughs> stop, <it. laughs> stop tempting me, you temptress. That's awesome. Care. So, what is it again? It's uh, yeah. If you're looking for a, a, a new doll to try out, definitely get Logic Pro X. It come, it can get it pre-installed with any Mac. Unfortunately, it's not. You can't use it on a PC, I don't think. But it just comes with it. It's a set of plugins called Vintage EQ, and there's three. There yeah, it's pretty awesome. That's awesome. That's cool. Uh, mine is definitely different, something I've never recommended. Uh, so for any of you guys out there, guys or girls, that are looking for kind of a meal replacement protein drink in a bottle but looking for something a little more healthy uh, i know that when i read the back of protein powders i'm like god dang that's a lot of things i can't pronounce mm-hmm. um this is called koya k-o-i-a and so far i've only found it at whole foods and sprouts do you guys have sprouts on the east coast we don't we have whole foods but no, we have trader okay. joe's and whole foods and uh, okay so hopefully else, it'll Hopefully it'll be at Whole, uh, Trader Joe's eventually, but because it was only at Whole Foods and it made it to Sprouts, which is our cheaper version of Whole Foods of our organic stores. Anyways, only four grams of sugar, and that sugar sound like a freaking ad, but that sugar is <laughs> coming from dates. It's not sugar, um, but uh, all of the protein is uh, plant protein, so it's pea um, protein, and it's the best tasting protein drink I've ever had. And it's definitely one of those things where I keep like four or five of these in my fridge. I don't drink them religiously, but if it's just a day like when I teach drum camps and I'm like, man, it has been six hours since I ate last. I hammer one of these and I'm good to go. Um, but the most important thing is just the taste. It tastes amazing. It's it's really good. But only four grams of uh, sugars from natural sources like dates. But then you get 18 grams of uh, protein, of nice. plant-based protein. That's Especially the, the if you're bottle? Yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah, one serving per bottle. So if you're somebody that's maybe vegan and you're trying to avoid, you know, animal-based protein, then this would be a great way to go. So it's Koya, K-O-I-A, and you can get it in vanilla, uh, cacao bean, and it's dairy-free, non-GMO, and soy-free for any of those of you freaking out about those things. That's all I got. <laughs> all right. We made it through. We're back. All right. So I'm going to go do some push-ups. Our closing beat is by Marcus over in Germany. So thanks, Marcus. Marcus.